that was in the last set. So that's where we left off. Uh, Living Writers is next. I got to get in my mixtape closer, so I'm going to shut up now. Uh, stay tuned all day and all night to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, thanks for the great music in- intro, uh, engineer Jesse Johnston in the saddle today, and for um, all the great music as I was driving over to the station on the way here listening mm. to WCBN. Always a pleasure. And speaking mm. of other mm. uh, pleasures, Josie Kearns is here in the studio. Welcome, Josie. It's great to be here. Thanks. Poet mm. Josie Kearns, thanks. nonfiction writer Josie Kearns, many lecturer. <laughs> I saw all that stuff. All these many hats, <laughs> Josie Kearns. Yeah, true. Um, and you've got two mm-hmm. books that are out mm-hmm. this this year. 2009 is, is a banner year for you. It's been pretty good, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, it's it's. I was a big surprise. So, and actually, when the books came out, like I was waiting for them to be delivered, like my copies, they and I thought that one small package was just more of the same, and both books got delivered on the same day and different publishers. It was like. And my and my horoscope. Oh my god! And my work. It was so great. My horoscope in the Chicago Tribune said I had a ten, and they rate it from one to ten, ten being the best. And I was like, oh, now I know what a ten is. You get two books delivered to you. It was really silly. Yeah. How often I wonder are you the horoscope? You know, the daily yeah. horoscopes rated a ten. You don't get do tens you? very often. Hmm. So. And we were talking. Mm-hmm. You're a cusp mm-hmm. person, right? You're, you, we might as Libra well. Scorpio. Yes, might as well reveal it. Yes. <laughs> Worst yeah. of both worlds, but. <laughs> Anyway, oh well. Mm. So the two books that we're we're talking about mm. right now, the theory of everything, um, this book out by May Apple Press um, in Bay City, Michigan, and then the other book, uh, Alphabet of the Ocean, and this book um, printed by March Street Press, uh, and these folks uh, are in Greensboro, North mm-hmm. Carolina. Right. Um, And I also just uh, we might be hearing a poem from one of Josie's earlier books, New Numbers. And this is in the the Michigan uh, Writers Series. Um, Oh, New Issues Press. New Mm -hmm. new Series Press. Okay, Um, so lots of exciting poems ahead, I think, because you'll read some for us. (laughs) Sure. Definitely. Great. Great. And um, to kick off. 
we'll start with the biography of our, <laughs> our, our poet in this mm. hot seat here. Josie Kearns was born in Flint, Michigan, and was raised there by her mother, Gladys Kearns Kibbe, and her stepfather, Ray Kibbe. Um, this is her fourth book of poems and fifth book. And we're going to be talking about that. I think that fifth book that you're, mm-hmm. you're um, alluding to is Life After the Line, a nonfiction, nonfiction book from right. Wayne State Press. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her work has been awarded four Creative Artist Grants from the Michigan Council for the Arts, three Hopwood Awards, a Cowden Fellowship, a grant to the NEA uh, a Detroit Women Writers Fellowship, and numerous writer-in-residences from the Ragdale Foundation. Um, and, and we're going to fill in some of the other the biography notes now, too. Um, Josie, you yeah. came here for yeah. the MFA, right? Right, uh, right. Okay, so you're, you're Michigan, born and bred. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's pretty scary. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> no, no. So, so yeah. basically mm-hmm. you write about snow. No, <laughs> I know it's, it's, well, actually I think the Midwest is pretty surreal and I don't think people really get that, you know, like there, like one time I was walking down to Flint uh, to go out for the evening to have dinner with my husband and we felt like something was watching us on the left and we turned and there were three elephants swaying in this uh, green space and it was like, what in the <laughs> so we get to the restaurant we start telling people we saw three elephants and everybody's like no no and we find out that the the you know the ringling brothers is in town and the place they used to house them was torn down so they're out in the field <laughs> i was like yes the midwest is surreal it really is right it wasn't any yeah. you know extra goodies that that you guys no. <laughs> <laughs> partaken of wow three elephants yeah That's... and they sway right before they're going to go to sleep and so i found that out later in a pbs special but and I was like, why, yes, they did sway. <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah, because they weren't even just stationary or eating. Yeah, <laughs> doing they were some like, sort of elephant dance. It's very weird. Amazing. Yeah. And, so, and anyway. elephants, always a good omen. I you guess, know? yes. Okay, I think that's even better than getting a 10 on your horoscope. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, three swaying elephants. But And so, and you live mm-hmm. now with your husband, who's also a poet. Right, Joe Matusik. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and you were mentioning he has a book coming out. Yeah, it's uh, he's fiddling with it, and he won't give me a copy to look at. But um, he's like, I'm not done with it yet. But Wayne State University Press is going to publish it in 2010. It's called Eating Fire. So it's going to be fun. He just did a reading uh, in Farmington, so... He's he's happy about it. So getting the work out there in the world, the poems mm-hmm. are, are getting out there in the the oral the oral way. Oh, yeah. definitely. Um, and and you guys live mm-hmm. in Clinton. And- Clinton, which is a tiny town of twenty four hundred people. Um, it's very picturesque. I just went to the uh, the local um, theater there, and they had a screen that had a, a wrinkle. And so when the new people took over the the small town theater, they fixed the wrinkle and it went up fifty cents. So it was instead of two fifty, it was three dollars. And so people were standing in line saying, "I don't know if it's worth it." Fifty cents. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And, and, this and it's is for first a movie. run. It's this... for first run movies too. I just saw um, uh, Night at the Museum too. So. Wow. So we should all get get there, $2. get over there to Clinton and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 be happy about it. No, no wrinkles on the screen. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so mm. and I well, while I was looking mm. you up online, Josie, as well, I saw that you are mm. a, a noted card shark. Is that is card that shark. true? Card shark. Yeah. From the Works in Progress series. The, there was Works a side note series. about when you were crazy. Maybe they were just being oh. crazy at Crazy Wisdom. I don't know. Oh, they mean the tarot cards. So 
that's what they're talking about, I guess. Oh, I was yeah, here. I was thinking meant. poker or oh, something. Oh no, I'm terrible like, at games the, of chance. Like you're going over to Windsor or or even staying no. in Detroit for a quick. No, they week. probably were mentioning the tarot cards, but. Oh, yeah, so, so what is it about the tarot that? Uh, it, well, I'm a verbal person, you know, and so um, and everything is text, text, text. So um, one of the things that's interesting to me about the tarot is that it's you know besides the predictive and what will happen and stuff like that, it, which is fun to think about. The visuals are so beautiful, and you think in a more in a different way, like a almost like an artist would think. Uh, and, but it does have you know things like opportunity and you know change and things like that. But it's all represented visually, and so that's kind of a, that's kind of, kind of gives my brain a rest, you know, from words. <laughs> so when you're so. so when you're making the poems, mm-hmm. Josie, are mm-hmm. are they so it's so it's not that they're image driven necessarily. How like mm, how that's is a good it, point. Yeah. How are you? Well, working? it's it's sort of um, I'll get an image. That's true. Um, but then I want to talk about something I just found out, like, you know, like the Inventions poem, for example, or, you know, something like that, or the shells. Um, the seashells drove myself and my husband crazy, I think. But anyway, I just really got in, into them and I dive into stuff uh, like a lot and sort of uh, get uh, a sensory overload and and really, really study it and stuff like that. Um, at the time, I had also read um, Susan Orlean's book, who's also from Michigan, University of Michigan, um, The Orchid Thief. That's and, a great and book, it's also, isn't it? It's a great book. And it's also all Not this at all stuff, like the movie. You know, <laughs> no, I know the movie. But I'm going to use it this in the fall. But it's so funny because it, it really delves into it. And she started by just getting immersed in it. Um, and Florida, you know, and the seashells are in Florida. And it's like the same area. And it's such a crazy place. But Florida reminds me of the Midwest because it's surreal. It's got weird yeah. things next Amen to weird to things. That. Yeah, Amen. Yes. it really is. Yeah, all so. the serial killers go through Florida. It has is the largest per capita of serial killers. That's true. Is that's actually a factoid? <laughs> that's actually a factoid. I usually just toss that other one no, out just it's by true. just from my reading. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I actually up there. went out to get shells at night, thinking, well, maybe I could get more shells at night at one a.m. by myself, you know, with a tiny flashlight. On this, on the Gulf Coast, I mean, I was really, I was completely addicted to the seashells. I mean, I just was like, oh my gosh, I'm out here. Then I found out later, oh, the most serial killers are in Florida. Oh, great. <laughs> and I didn't know my boundaries or my surroundings or anything. So, so that was what was at stake for the book Alphabet of the Ocean, <laughs> just out with March Street Press then. Yes, yeah. Very much. So, yeah. so when you so, were researching this book, mm-hmm. so it took you to Florida. Yeah, I, and- I went to Florida three years ago and I started and I thought I was going to find um, I had really bad motives I thought I was going to find you know cash and treasures and doubloons and stuff like that that get tossed up after a storm <laughs> which is really hard to do but I had I had seen cash and treasures on TV you know on, on the well, did you channel. have a metal detector no I wasn't or? that nerdy but okay. um, but I thought about it but I, I thought well I'll just get lucky because sometimes I can find things but it was so hilarious because the first thing I really got were these five conch shells and they're just beautiful but I almost whole rolled ones. whole ones and I almost rolled right into the riptide uh, I fell actually and um, and I got this this shell that is beautiful um, but it has uh, and it has numbers on it five zero zero it's very cool and um, it was so weird because you could probably get that for like five cents or something or not even that but, but do you, do you, you know. think that so then the shell had been found and then someone had somehow tossed it back into the ocean had reclaimed it during like why would it have five zero zero the numbers no no I mean imprinted? it was naturally on there there were numbers that were naturally on there which is kind of weird 
<laughs> I know it sounds like, like Jesus' is... face might have been on there too. Or maybe that was another oh, right. show. <laughs> oh, that poem by Lee Upton, Jesus on a Tortilla, yeah. But no, no. It, so it was really fun. And, and then I started noticing, um, the way I got into the shell theory was I started noticing that the lettered olives um, had these triangles in clusters. And my mother-in-law had given me a bracelet with cutouts and it was cuneiform writing and they're clusters of triangles. So I thought, I wonder if they came, you know, so I've been researching, researching and um, it, it connects uh, with the shapes that are on shells in the right areas connect with cuneiform, uh, ancient Arabic, um, Hebrew, runes. I think that's it so far. But the ancient shapes are, are on the seashells, which makes sense, you know, from the natural world. That's where people would get an idea. And it's not just that there's triangles on it. There's uh, The triangles are in specific clusters, and so is the cuneiform language. So it was kind of the shape of it anyway. So I was like, oh, come on. Somebody must have thought about this. And then I talked to Dr. Richard Curitan, who's a... Um, a linguist here and he said no no one's done <laughs> like you gotta write this up so i did and i haven't said it out yet but it's it was really fun i, I really got into the shells plus there's an animal in there that i don't know anything about and you know these spirals and these beautiful shells that they make it's art and architecture you know it's really beautiful and now i now language so and yeah. so, so you've also, besides the book, uh, Alphabet of the Ocean, Josie, mm-hmm. you also have a, a, an essay in the works. Is that what it's, you, I finished it at Ragdale this summer? Um, the essay. What or I is have it to more do, than an essay? I mean, what I'm hoping what is it's it? just an essay. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but um, but I do need. I'm putting together photos of stuff that I get online of seashells, and they're in the right areas where the language is developed. So that's gonna be put together and sent out for publication. So. It's quite an interesting thing to deal with. Yes, it actually sounds like it could be even, um, you know, you're a PhD if you wanted to do something like that in linguistics and I I, I the don't natural know how, world. Yeah, I don't know how it would connect, but it, it just it's been really fun researching it, and I really want to thank people. Um, who have large egos because I've gotten the most help from them because scientists don't have a lot of photos because they already know what the shells look like. But people who have collections and have big egos and want people to look at their collections, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, do you want <laughs> to do some I can shout see, outs? You know, shout outs to, uh, yeah, um, to different people that are on the web because they have their collection and they're in four color. And you can really see the shell and the markings on the shell. So that's what's really helped my research. It, it's, it's great. I bet there's a really good essay in um, The Obsessional collectors yeah, then as well that's true. especially yeah. since you felt yourself verging on that obsession oh my gosh <laughs> Josie, i'm over it now but <laughs> much recovered and much recovered much josie recovered. kearns is here mm-hmm. at the studio we're gonna take a short break today on living writers you've got josie kearns here in the studio i'm t hetzel we'll be back you can hang me in a bottle like a cat Still on. 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Josie Kearns here in the studio. Um, before... That's so funny to hear you say that. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, well, 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 you know, I don't know why it would be, because Josie actually let slip um, before we went on the air that she used to host Living Writers way, That's way back. When, when... Oh, my gosh. I can't remember when that was. Well, Chaz, um, oh. an engineer here for quite a long time now, he's at Northwestern in journalism school. But he mentioned yesterday mm-hmm. that Living Writers, um, just after Closets, um, uh, Closets Are for Clothes, mm-hmm. is one of the you know, longest running shows with different oh, hosts really? step, stepping in. Oh, so it's yeah. just great that you I don't mentioned. Think I, I don't think I did it very long. I remember interviewing Richard Tillinghast and Laura Kajishki and but it was really, oh, they, really a long time ago. Some, some of our Michigan superstars, actually. Very you can't true. get better than that. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I learned a lot. And so, so, and did you do that when you were in the MFA program here, Josie? Or that when? was before. Before? That was before, yeah. And then when I got in the MFA program, I started doing it more consistently but it was and then i got too busy couldn't do it anymore <laughs> so it's quite a program so oh well it's interesting mm. that you t- nice it's to weird. meet a former host <laughs> um, and i've met a few yeah. of them now i'd mm. add ashley david and rachel harkai right. to All the right. mix and um okay well um well josie uh we've been talking about one of the two new books out this year um alphabet of the ocean uh I, I also I wanted to ask you about March Street Press because I mm-hmm. noticed that your first chapbook was also came yeah. out with March Street and I think you you um, you mentioned I think you give uh, a special thanks to Robert Bixby who seems a to great be guy. at the yeah. helm of March Street. He's Press. published a lot of Michigan people. I mean it's he's he's really good and he's been lucky for me. Um, he published the chapbook of New Numbers and then uh, Herb Scott published New Numbers in the full collection and I've already got interest. I probably shouldn't say who it is, but I've got interest in somebody who wants to publish a longer version of uh, Alphabet of the Ocean, but they want it to be called Pink Noise, which is cool because I finally finished that poem. But <laughs> but um, it's he's just been really lucky for me. I mean, the chapbook gets out and then other people get ideas about a longer book. So, so is he's that, very cool. So is that the idea then, Josie, of, of, yeah. of making... The, this it's like a it's it's like a first it's like a first sketch not a first sketch obviously but, this is but, through no, many revisions but, but yeah yeah but it is and it, actually I'm glad you said revision because Diane Mokoski helped me greatly in editing the book <laughs> and so um, because I just uh, all the poems came really quickly after that first year and it's when it comes in a burst like that it's hard to go back and edit. Because you you don't know you don't really know what you're looking at in a certain way. Other other times it's fine. I go back and revise and all that. And then Diane, when I asked her for a blurb, she said, "Well, you know, I could give you a better blurb if I if we worked on this just a little bit more before Bixby publishes it." And she actually knows him. So I said, "Oh, all right, I'll take whatever advice you know." So, so you're it was open. kind of cool. You're open to oh, yeah. hearing because you trust That's her funny. as a, a reader. Oh my gosh, yes. But, but could you give us an example? Of like, so what sort of feedback she, would she give well, you? What she did is she cut more the poems more because I knew they were too long and she cut them more to I tend to cut to the good sounding line I mean I really recognize this when I saw them all together and she tends to cut more toward what the poem needs which is a really big lesson for me you know I mean I I think I do it in my other work but in 
because it's, it's crisp and all that. But in the, I hope, but in this, I was into the undulation of the waves and, you know, like they're all out, they're actually lined out like that. And which I think is just a big silliness now. But at the time it was like, yes, I'm going to make them like waves, you know. But um, but I was hearing the ocean, you know, the ocean really gets in your head when you are living, you know, on the Gulf. And we heard it every day and all night and all this. So I think it was much harder to edit because of that. And so, but I was noticing about how she was making the poem work differently. It's a strange thing, but but she's really good at it too. But yet you felt like mm. she was making the poem work differently, but at better, what you better. meant, what oh, your intentions oh, sure. were at the core of the poem, oh, like helping you to see that, or um, shaping it more. Like you don't need these three lines because you've already established that idea over here. I mean, that was the kind of thing she was doing. And it was like, oh, this sounds a lot better. You know, and it was like, oh. And then there's one poem that she didn't believe. She said it sounded made up, but I kept it anyway. I disagreed with someone. <laughs> so one, with one poem, but I won't say which one it is. But, but she didn't believe. Mm-hmm. She, she said it sounds made up and it was all absolutely true, but it was really funny. So then I thought, well, then I edited it. My husband helped me edit it a little bit more, too, because it was like, well, what does that mean? It sounds made up. It's it's glib or it doesn't, you know. So then I went back in. That's what I thought she probably meant. So I went back in and changed a bunch of stuff. So, But I kept the poem in. Yeah, because so. it sounds made up. That's such a, that I mean, everything then really, we're always making our whole world's up. Well, right? even like, your <laughs> memories are, even yeah. like they say, if you tell a memory more than once, you edit, it changes anyway. So it's a very strange thing, but. She's really cool, though. I like Diane Wachowski is really. Um, she's an amazing poet herself, but she's really good at criticism, <laughs> you know. And she has really good ideas. So I, I, I was really grateful. Do you are you Josie? Were you, when you looked at the poems, like so, you ha- didn't have the sense like these are these are finished or these. Although you had approached I had March pr- Street Press. Well, at what this happened time, is so March Street had a website, and I was just checking on places to send stuff, and he had did a blog and he talked about how he's really sick of people sending him stuff where everything's already been published. He wants an idea where nothing is really published yet and you're just starting out and blah, blah, blah. And I only had two poems published um, of the whole manuscript of the Alphabet of the Ocean. So I thought, I, I wrote him and I said, yeah, remember me? Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, this is exactly what's going on and it's all this one theory thing that I've got. So he said, okay, send it. And he said, yes. And so he said, he, I don't know if he felt like he had to say yes, maybe, because he already, you know, sort of said that. But um, he was really happy that Diane was going to work on it, too. So it was really great. It was great of her, too. And um, and then you have uh, you have Thomas Lynch has, has wrote a blurb mm-hmm. for you. Um, can you how do you how do you decide, like, who you ask to, to blurb the books? Because Lorna Peterson has like, <laughs> really got a, nice, a, a blurb yeah. on the back of the other book that will hopefully hear something from the theory yeah. of everything. Yeah. And Culloden notes, too. Um, I met Culloden. Well, I met Tom years ago uh, at a writer's conference and I've known him. He's come to my class. I've taught his book and, you know, stuff like that. So I at, you know, I said, which, which you book? Know, can you? Which oh, book? his book. Um, uh the Undertaking. Oh, okay. Life so studies the of essays, dismal trade, essays, the essays, right. Okay. Actually, I taught it when it first came out. I read it in two days, and I just said, "I want to do." Will you come to class? I'm getting all these books for my students. This is a great, you know. So you were ahead of the it. six feet under curve. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was very cool. So he and he was very gracious and stuff. So mm. and he said, yeah, "Tom's just a gracious kind of guy." So. So, but I hate asking. I really, but I do it on email so that people won't. It, it's not face to face, you know. And then when the second. This book came first, and then when the the theory of everything, I got an okay from uh, Maple Press. I thought, oh crap, I've already asked the two people that I could 
maybe get a blurb from. Who do I ask now? <laughs> I actually like, oh no. And then, so then I remembered, gee, I haven't talked to Colette Inez in a while. Hmm. And then she said to send the manuscript and she decided, and then she said, yes, of course. And then, um, and then Lorna Goodison was just so sweet to do it because, oh, I was just right on deadline when they were going to, you know, because they wanted the publication to come out before AWP. So it was because I had a reading there and I had a signing, book signing, all that stuff. So the timing, it was like, oh my gosh. So, and I didn't want to ask Tom again or uh, definitely not Diane again. So, well, well, let me read Tom's blurb and then will okay. you read us a poem from sure. so so everyone can can have have a um, a listen. Uh, let's see. Thomas Lynch says. These urgent, undulant poems awash in the sea's strange lexicons are sparkling gifts indeed. Beachcomber, cliff dweller, pearl diver, and seasheller, Josie Kern's studies are full of rare finds. And so, That's such a sweet thing. <laughs> and now we'll hear one. Okay, this is Neptune, and this kind of, I wanted to open the book with this because it chronicles sort of my love affair with the ocean, <laughs> which began a long time ago. Neptune. The ocean makes you think of the old ways even if you never knew or practiced them. You say aloud Neptune. He responds with the force of megatons, shoots you tiny presents of pink murex, then courts with heavier shells, pagodas of conch, weight of quahog like a cladot ring. You remember almost drowning when you were seven, letting go, that green door under all the under, until a husky teen pulled you out, your mother on the shore screaming, she doesn't want you to go steady yet, not with such an older senior. Now you don't promise anything either, except words and saying his name. His blue arms, his teal translucence, pirate doubloons, tumbled sea glass, Spanish silver and spiny jewel box, starfish and sand dollar. All Neptune wants you back, his terrible love, his caldera arms. Your mother no longer there to protect you. There never was a father. What do you say to a man of means? So that's Neptune. And I actually went to the beach and I said, Neptune, you, you've got to give me some shells. <laughs> and I'm not drowning this time, but I will write a poem about you. <laughs> it was really funny because in my head I was like, okay, Neptune, shells. And I did find a bunch of shells, so it was, it was pretty strange. What's like mm. one of your prized shells? Would you say? Um, well, there is a shell I, I found on a morning. It's a lightning whelk. They're, they're beautiful and they're turbulent, you know, and they're um, spiral shaped. And it's gray and blue. And I found it during a huge storm. And it had gotten socked right into the side of the um, the the sand uh, embankment. And I had to, and I, and it, it was in a moment going to be a fossil because um, the sand covers things so quickly and so definitely and packs it down. Turns out sand's a really good packing material um, that I had to get it right away. And it's just beautiful. It's beige and blue. It's really gorgeous. So, and I like the spiral. <laughs> yeah. So now so, do you have them all over your house then? In the main rooms I do. And my husband said, are we going to have shelves everywhere in the house? And I said, no, just these two rooms and then upstairs in the library. So, yeah. And I have to, and I give, give them away to students as well because I have too many. <laughs> so anyway. And, and so Josie with this, um, do you find that you're, you're coming up with an idea that you, like you mm. said earlier, you become immersed in, like you just run full throttle into it and yep. then, and then it becomes a, a way to frame the book. Is that your method of working that, 
for, or is that just well, well, subconscious? Well, or? I start, sort of knew the Neptune poem had to come, or I had to write about Neptune because I had promised him I would. And um, and but then also I wanted to write about like I did almost drown when I was seven. Like I was really close. I'd gone down four times, so <laughs> it was really bad. Um, and uh, it was just accident that my mother saw me and that the little boy, the boy, well, little boy, he's probably 12, uh, came and got me. Um, and so there was that. I had been to the ocean before, but did the, the uh, near California. And so this is Florida, so it's a little bit different. Um, but then the other poems, I kept getting into the shells and what their names were. And, you know, there's these cone shells and Hebrew cones and there's um, lightning walk. What a great name i mean you know and then there were ponderous arcs and it's like oh a thinking ship is good you know and like when you get the name of the shell you just think about it and it's like suddenly you're off to the races i mean it's it was just like i had to but then i found out that people who shell are so into it and they want anything that has to do with shells so i was hoping the book would be a crossover you know or something like that but you know, I, I don't know yet. So, so any signs of that? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, like I was at a I was at Ragdale and I um t- was asked to speak to a group of visitors and so I did and I didn't even I didn't read or anything and uh, I had mentioned the shell book and I sold books so it, they were like I shall I want that book <laughs> so that was could, really strange. Could you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about Ragdale? Oh since sure, you've been there sure, sure. Uh, a few times. Uh, uh, Ragdale Foundation is an uh, artist uh, writer colony in Lake Forest, Illinois, and they also have a composer that comes usually. And it's artists and writers, fiction, poetry, dramatists, playwrights, um, screen screenwriters um, come. And uh, I met a bunch of people that I still know now. In fact, Audrey Neffenegger, who did, uh, who wrote The Time Traveler's Wife, is a major artist as well, and she did the cover of my book for The Theory of Everything. Um, and and I wanted her to do the cover of my book because I love her work. Uh, but I met Did her first as an artist. Did she create this specifically yes. for the, mm-hmm. the book? Oh, yeah. wonderful. So that was kind of cool. And then, and it's based on a drawing that I had seen in her uh, book, uh, the, the Incestuous Sister, the Three Incestuous Sisters. But the incestuous part is only because they all fall in love with the same guy. <laughs> but anyway, um, and it's sort of like a picture book. But um, but I asked her if she'd do it. She was, yes. And so, I mean, I just got a lot of help. But Ragdale's really cool because um, I just was there for a month. And it's like going back to the 19th century i mean there's no tv and there's every room has its own small library and then there's a larger library downstairs and they have all these ancient books and you read and you work and they make you food and it's great (laughs) wow it does it sounds like a dream and how were you first invited josie to go oh um because you've been there four times or so um more than four but i won't say how many Mm -hmm. (laughs) because i think they're going to make a rule that you can't come uh but um Larry Pike, who's a Detroit writer, told my husband Joe about it. And then Joe went, and then he kept saying, you have to go to Ragdale. You have to go to Ragdale. So as soon as I got my – and then um, Alice Fulton, um, who also you know, taught here, said that as soon as you get your MFA, go write. And so I thought, oh, all right, I should go to Ragdale now. So I got my MFA, and I went – there and I've been going <laughs> um, and it's just a great place. I mean, I get a lot of work done. Well, that, that's how it's, it seems like a great place for production. Yes, just, for production. It definitely is. Well, well we're going to take a short break. Sure. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Josie Kearns, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers, and today poet Josie Kearns is here. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, we had a poem from Alphabet of the Ocean, and now we're going to be moving on to the next book because uh, Josie's got. Uh, uh, what is that expression? It's like a, a spoil of riches or something like that. Well, because there's oh, two books yeah. in one year. Yeah. An embarrassment uh, of riches. Embar- is that it? Thank you. Oh, me, right. I shouldn't even attempt these phrases if I can't, you know, pull them off correctly. Right. Um, so, so this the the next book we're going to be talking about is the theory of everything. Um, and this this is by May Apple Press, uh, published uh, up in Bay City. Uh, Josie, so how so mm. so how did um, May Apple come into the picture then? What- well, I also checked their website, <laughs> um, and it said they weren't accepting any manuscripts. Um, and I thought, well, drat, because I like their they had these beautiful books. I mean, you know, and stuff. And this is before I had thought of uh, of Audrey as doing the cover because I didn't have a contract yet. And then I, but I had met, I'd seen Judith at the Ludington Writers Conference, um, and she was, you know, doing the book thing and stuff. And so I thought, and that's the editor and publisher. So then I thought, well, what if I just emailed her? <laughs> um, and she's, and so, and you know, if she says no, she'll, it'll be no. Like I'm not interested, and we really are closer. Maybe she'll be interested. So I pitched her the idea first because um, all my books so far, which is really odd to think about right now, uh, in poetry are, are usually concept books, and Pink Noise is going to be a concept book as well, around an idea, some idea. So. Um, this one was around, I, I wrote her and said, well, it's around uh, quantum physics theory. Don't, you know, cut me off now. Uh, it's about how the um, idea of quantum physics um, concepts dovetail with human experience. It's, I mean, it brings it back down to earth. And she said, oh, tell me more. And so I told her my ideas and I sent her like, I think, 10 online. And she said, okay, send the manuscript. So I was like, all right. You know, so, so so when going back just for a moment, mm-hmm. Josie, when you're you've got the so you're saying they're like a, a concept book, right? Okay, um, but does that is it because you're just you, it's what you 
you find that you've been like Obsessing a work about. <laughs> that is just starting to pile, become a sheaf yeah. of paper, you know, right. like where you're. And they seem to go in one direction. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. it's not as if you're thinking, I'm going to, it's time for the seashells or I'm going to think about physics or, you well, know. I've been thinking about physics and I had like, I had a core of maybe 10 poems that really were all comp- like dark matter and reading physics and satellite father and things that were really about that. And then it started to expand. But um, like in that book, and in New Numbers too, but in both of those books I had, because um, I was obsessed with numbers before, but um, they both have d- double voice pieces. Uh, and the reason for that is I met Alan Lightman because he came to U of M. U of M is a great place to meet people. <laughs> and um, he had written Einstein's Dreams at the time. And I said, I have a question. If there are 10 existences that are provable mathematically, uh, how come we can only perceive maybe four, you know, time being the fourth one, those dimensions? And he said, oh, that's because they're all coiled up in, inside each other. They're all coiled together, and that's why you can't really perceive them. And I was like, oh, so with language, maybe you would coil one or two voices together, and that's how you would like make a poem that talks about that in physics. I was trying to figure out what the how you could sort of do it on the page. And then it was also because I was coming at the same um, topic with two ways of looking at it, and I thought, well, why can't I put those both and weave them together? And so that's that's how some of those poems came to be. Which was kind of fun. For the inventions one, it's really easy because you've got my mother and I talking, and then you've got all these inventions by women. So, which was hard to look up at the time, but there has been a book out now about women inventors. But at the time, I had to go to the kids section of the library and look up Pulitzer Prize winners and find out what they invented and things like that. Or um, I'm sorry, Nobel and yeah, Nobel and Pulitzer Prize winners to see what had gotten invented. So somebody got that idea as a um, a book, and they've actually published about that. So I thought that was good. But anyways, so, but, but also like when I read physics, I sort of see things that match in my life and different things like, um, the concept of singularity, which means it's some, it's an event that doesn't fit any other phenomena. Like the, um, when we were talking earlier about seeing the, uh, three elephants, like it doesn't fit any other phenomena, (laughs) you know, things like that happen to me. So it's like, oh, maybe that's what they mean by an anomaly. Cause I've never, you know, had three elephants sway and watch me again. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To which actually reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you, Josie, sure. with on that particular poem that features singularity. Um, I I noticed that at the end you you chose to put a, an asterisk with some background information. Um. Oh, which one? I. And and I was wondering if that. Oh. Was, oh. The um. Oh yeah. Pi. Pi yes. was hard to write. <laughs> so, so. So yeah. So is that? Um. Yeah. Could you talk about why? Why you chose to do that, and I think that, and there's an earlier poem where you also have like it, it's an not quite a fo- kind of footnote, sort but of. it's yeah. yeah. Well, I, and I'm why real... you didn't make it a footnote? Why it's yeah. an asterisk that that's floats yeah. so close well, to the poem, or just choices I th- like that? I sort of thought that um, if I well, I had somebody, um, Carolyn, this woman that I met at Ragdale. Um, we were looking at each other's manuscripts and stuff way before this came out, and she looked at the pie poem. And she thought that's too long of an epigram to have at the beginning, and then the other idea was if you do it. And give it all away. Maybe you want to say that at a reading, but for the reader in the book, you want to, um, you know, rise, raise some questions, and then at the end, if they're really confused, you can put the footnote in. And it was like, oh, that makes sense. Make people think about it first, and then go, oh, that's what that means. Because when I was doing Pi, I was reading about this palimpsest that they just found uh, that has some of Archimedes' original theories on it, and um, this whole idea of filling the circle with every known shape. 
And then what what's left between that and where you can't fill it in, that the unknown part, that's pie. That's actually pie. And I'd never been taught that before. And I was like, this is great. I live in the unknown, <laughs> you know, between what's known and what's not known. And then, um, and then this woman was also there who was a composer, but she also helps the Alaskan Whale Foundation. And so the idea of the whales in a circle, creating all these bubbles and trapping heron and having like a party, a barbecue, was like, oh my gosh, pie. Like, you know, so it was, it was kind of a cool idea. I can't read that poem because it's um, double voiced and I need two people. So that'll be for another time, I guess. But uh, I don't know when that would be. But I mean, that's kind of the idea. But, well, why couldn't you read it with, um, well, with I, I mean, no, of, I just think that's interesting. It's uh, hard or, to read with two. You, you can, the idea is kind of to step on the other line a little bit, just a little bit. Like when I'm ending, uh, is that what we do? You understand Rome by way of Florence would come in very it's quickly. Just, it's, yeah, it's supposed it's, to kind of go juggernaut. Like, yes. yeah. So, but anyway, but, but I can read a poem if you'd like, um, that has, uh, that talks about physics. Um, sure. Directly, if you yeah, know. yeah. And the reason this is Toshiko Wada Meyer, who's an artist that I met at Ragdale. <laughs> um, she does installation work, and um, she uh, uh, she's really cool. You have many dedications and in this particular yeah. book too. Even Stephen yeah. Hawking gets gets a shout out for yeah. black holes. And, yeah, yeah, right. Because I learned a lot from all these people. I mean, I'm really lucky in that. Um, I, I get a lot from other people. <laughs> so there's that. It's not plagiarism, but I do get a lot of ideas from other people talking and stuff. And Shuko made me think about stuff I had not done in years. Like when I was a kid, I was like three or four, and I put all these coffee cups out, and it's in the poem. And I put gumballs in it, and I was recording how long it took for the um, color to come off in the water. I put water in the... It was like some sort of weird experiment. <laughs> and she reminded me of all the stuff I used to do as a kid, and I thought, i got to write about that. So anyway, this is called Reading Physics for Shiko Wattemeyer, artist. Reading Physics. It's like a secret code you knew as a child when you kept careful notes how ex of how exactly red ball gum differs from blue when its shards shear off in arcs floating in the space of hot tap water, green plastic coffee cups laid out on your yellow kitchen table in rows labeled like Petri dishes, or like the red-yellow-blue Play-Doh you melted on general electric bulbs in the dining room dripping to candle taper perfection, kept in mason jars like radium. Now how steady-state theory seems to connect to the Maya beliefs. We are now in our fifth world. And infinite parts of quantum suggest Egyptian star religion. But also because there's something in chaos theory akin to how you orbit your own world, unsent thank-you notes spilling out of a desk like filaments of novas, faulty wiring in the basement contribute contributing to certain eclipses upstairs. Attraction and gravity, not far from that Laurence Olivier look-alike at the gym, extra laps around the solar system for you, elliptical anomaly, and spiral galaxies happen every day in your coffee cup when the cream swirls like so many billion. Your milky way, red as a spectrograph, with foam a sprinkle of cinnamon can make. Your eyes are not the singularity expected with their darker nucleus, and so fractal decisions become small-town talk of the nebular. You've left your one dimension for ten, interlocking as Lincoln logs your cousin wouldn't let you play with, and every time Hubble makes a discovery no one can fathom, you applaud like the fan of an underdog playoff team. It's great to know minds who know calculus are stumped. And you read and read far into the candlelit night, while mortality groans on its axis, as if, looked at another way, 
your life has a solution some other continuum could tell you. Thank Not you. that I ever found any. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. Well, that's but for the next book, isn't it? Really? <laughs> the, all solutions. The, that'll but... be the solutions. <laughs> yeah, really. But anyway. Oh, I grabbed your book. Sorry. Well, that's okay. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. grab it back here. Yeah. Anyway. But I mean, it, it's just fun. Like, it starts to make a certain sense to you. And you know, people have said physics is, is the modern poetry because, or the modern religion, because a lot of it is not provable except mathematically. Like you actually will not see that level, um, you know, the subatomic level or the larger, you know, cause we're not out there yet. So yeah. it's kind of cool in that way. I, I, um, yeah, I have to say I'm like, was so, it's so happy. I mean, I'd love to see fractal in a poem, the word, <laughs> you know, I was just, I couldn't, you, yeah, yeah it get, wanted language, to tell you that. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> the language gets in there, though. You start talking about spirals, and there's, like, the sacred spiral, and there's all these, like, offshoots, and you start thinking, you know, it sort of, when you read physics, it sort of permeates how you're thinking about things. It's scary sometimes to read it. And you're, yes. Actually. Yes. Um, well, also because there's a certain point sometimes where it feels like, at least for me, that your mm -hmm. mind approaches a part where it's, like, it stops. Yeah. with the considering of an, of the idea it sort of just stops and and it's I, so big yeah <laughs> yeah it's true uh, it's, and that's uncomfortable because you want to think that your 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 connections are limitless that you can be tossing them out there and they'll keep connecting to other things but yeah when you're some people say that when they read physics they get a sense of vertigo and that happens like i, I have to read it and then i have to put it aside <laughs> for a minute because yeah it's whirling out there in the planets and everything. It, it's interesting how mm. you also bring the physics, mm. physics of language into the, the book, the theory of mm. everything, um, w with your punctuation poems. Oh, that's true. And, and you chose to put those into that. couplets. I thought, I wondered if that was just how it felt right or if that it's was... It's very sentence-like. <laughs> and the punctuation is like the general of the sentence or the lieutenant or something. Well, I guess the comma would be the lieutenant, the period would be the general, I don't know, or the chief of staff or something. But anyway, but it's like, I don't know why it's the, thinking of the that now. Manuel. Not even in there, but anyway. But yeah, it's it was sort of fun. And it's great to end a book with period. And it's a period, and it's like the last one. I thought that's like a cosmic joke. <laughs> it's so, true. Yeah, that's fun. The final, the final line, lovely. Like with a, we like one heartbreak at a time. We like one end. Yeah, and that's, it's that's, done. That's yeah. the finale. Uh, and I like mm. how you work Richard Hugo in there with you know his anti homage to the semicolon. Which it is, is ugly. That's what he says, and yeah. he's not he's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel. Today on the program, Josie Kearns. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Josie Kearns on the program. Um, uh, just very quickly, before we move on, we've got some still some great things to talk about here. Um, but I wanted to mention a couple of upcoming uh, uh, reading events and then end with Josie's, because Josie's got one coming up in Detroit. Um, so... Uh, Let's see. We've got next week, uh, Carlo Ruiz Zafon is going to be at Borders on Tuesday, and he's coming into town with his latest, The Angels Game. He'll be on the, we'll be taping a show with him. Also just taped a show with Ali Seti, who is on a tour for The Wishmaker. And he's come through town, but he's heading, um, tonight he'll be in Los Angeles at Vrome's Bookstore. For any of you out on the West Coast, um, then the next day in Seattle at Elliott Bay, June 19th in Portland, Oregon at Powell's. Um, other cities, in case you're streaming, San Francisco, Houston, Denver, you can look for him there. Um, a very important reading coming up will be um, at Shaman Drum, uh, a, a special afternoon on Sunday, June 28th at 5 o'clock. Uh, the readers will be um, the indomitable Keith Taylor and Ray McDaniel and Angel Nafis. Um, this will be the, the final reading at Shaman Drum oh, wow. and, and a way to come. So come and join the community. Uh, Carl Port will be there. Uh, he'll be reading something uh, they, they promise also some f- food and beverage. So um, wow. come and, and celebrate uh, a really good place. And that's Shaman Drum on Sunday, June 28th. I will so, definitely be at that. Josie, and where else will you be? Where will you be reading? Oh, I'll be reading uh, at... The The Scarab Club in Detroit, which I haven't been to and I haven't seen, um, on Monday, July 13th at 7 o'clock p.m. So I'm I'm excited because I've heard about the, I've heard it's really beautiful inside and different authors have signed it. And I'm going to be reading with three other people who I don't know. Um, It's kind of like a mini anthology of poets and stuff. And so that'll be fun. Yeah. And your husband will go with you. So you might be reading pie there. I might be reading two. Yeah. With two uh, voices. With the two voices. So Joe can step up and and do the second voice. Um, Mm -hmm. So while you mentioned an anthology, Josie. Mm-hmm. Um, you you helped to edit. You've been in you've been in a number of anthologies, your own poems, um, and then you mm-hmm. were at the helm of it was the Contemporary Michigan Poetry New Poems mm-hmm. from the Third Coast. Right, right. What was it like to 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 help compile an um, anthology? Well, actually, we, that was really difficult because um, I was under the impression that I had a certain page limit and a certain number of people and stuff and that turned out to not be as true was that because you were co-editing it yeah it was the first time well mike delp and uh conrad hilbert had edited it before with herb scott and herb asked me to do it and i said well sure but then after i said yes it was a huge job and it was fraught with difficulty and stuff and then i called him back to ask him a couple things and he said he would never do it again and i said why not and he said i lost friends (laughs) I was like, wow. Um, and so Because of you know, not being able to include everyone right, you'd like to include. Right. Yeah. If I were to do another any other I don't think I'd ever do another anthology, but if I were, I would just include everyone. <laughs> because it's just there's so many writers in Michigan and you know, it's just it the whole way it got done was like but I was just a babe in the woods. I mean, I didn't really understand what was going on, uh, or some of it. Well, I because did. what is the mission? Is it to get new work out there, or is it to to, right. to act as like um, a gatekeeper well, for some? I know, type I know, of, and that's not what I thought. I thought, well, actually, the first thing that came into my head was, well, at least I'll be included then if I'm an actor. <laughs> Which is like, because, you know, it's always like, well, I get in. But, um, and then I thought, well, then 
and I would be a good reader for new people and stuff, you know. And I remember I had to, well, I won't talk about who I had to argue about, but I do remember um, having to argue somebody who I think everybody now would be really surprised I had to argue them into the anthology because they've gone on and done marvelous things. And they were doing marvelous things then. I couldn't understand it. But I was thinking about Helen Vendler when she was here, who's a critic and also has poems out, poetry books out. And I asked her who she thought was the new up-and-coming you know, writers and stuff, poets, and she said, well, I don't know, and I, I won't be doing that anymore. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I don't get the references. Like, it's not my time anymore, which I thought was so interesting. You know, she's completely erudite and all of this, but it was sort of like there's a certain voice that you hear, there's a certain um, way that you look at it. But it was it disturbed me, and she hasn't done that. That that seems really sad too. Like it doesn't because there's there's something about poems that um, that ought to be timeless as well in a certain way. Yeah, I didn't. Um, Yeah, I was really. But I do remember when I did the anthology. Yeah, there was there were people didn't. I actually got horse reading some poems of people thinking, don't you don't you get this? Like it's you know, don't you, don't you hear it? So I really, you know, I, the only match in my life that was like what Helen said was that experience. So I thought, oh, maybe they just don't hear it. It made me feel better if people don't like my stuff because I think, oh, maybe they just don't hear it. Okay, I feel better than that. You know, than that it's just crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean? I mean, I just, I was like, oh, that explains it maybe. Maybe it does. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, it is interesting. Well, it's strange. Well, mm. well. So, mm. so no more anthologies for you. You don't mind being in them, but you yeah, don't want to no, be no. at and the. And actually, the actually, speaking of editing too, um, Pam Jemin, who is editor for uh, Are You Experienced in Boomer Girls and the new one that's coming out, uh, Beauty, Sweeping she, Beauty, Sweeping Beauty. Yeah, or no, Sweeping Beauty's out. <laughs> there's another one coming out. But anyway, oh, okay. uh, oh, there's one. I think it's called The Body or something that that I've got some stuff coming out. Of. But anyway, she is such a good editor. I mean, she really. It, makes things more crisp, makes the endings better. I mean, you know, she's just, a, and she likes to include lots of different kinds of people. You know, it's just, that was a very different experience. But she, you know, she says it's really hard. It's a lot of work. So. Yeah, a lot of reading. A, a lot, lot of reading. A lot of reading mm-hmm. and choices. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, so you also have um, mm-hmm. on deck um, a new book of nonfiction Josie. Well, nobody's taken it yet, and I haven't sent it out yet, but um, I do have an agent, so that part's good. But um, it's uh, nonfiction. It's about stealing. (laughs) It's called Stealing. uh, Well, the working title is Stealing uh, Theft, Consequence, and Identity. And I've been researching it for the past, like, five years, and it's, it just gets, there's so much stealing, you know, it's really big. But I think I have a theory that fits with everything. So you mean in that, like looking at it from the new technology aspect of everything, everything. Um, I actually, um, have story or or just the, the collapsing housing market or just, well, I haven't looked at that part now. No, it's, it's more personal stealing. Um, the largest I get are, um, some statistics on, uh, embezzling, uh, apparently people who are between, uh, 40 and 51 do the most embezzling, which I think is interesting. (laughs) You know, maybe a life crisis or something. Um, there's, I mean, it's real, I've been really looking at all these stories of stealing, so. It's it's strange, and and so and you're no stranger to to making a book of nonfiction because you have um from in 1990 uh your life after the line uh with Wayne State Press mm-hmm. about right. retired auto workers. Well, actually laid off and but they were laid specifically off. yeah yes. specifically people who worked 10, 15, some 20 years and were completely laid off, like um, devoted whole lives mm-hmm, to this right. and kind of looked ahead to continue it well, until re- retirement. Yeah, and then they you know they were closing uh, as they 
they are now again uh, closing uh, factories. But they um, these are people that I focused on specifically who are successful in new careers. And what happened was most of them had a job on the side and had something outside of the shop. It, like the shop wasn't their whole thing. So even though they work there and everything, um, like one was Hatch Business Enterprises, and he did. Um, uh, snow removal and uh, sealing of parking lots and things like that. Um, and then another one was a yoga instructor, like he'd always done yoga, which was really unusual if you think about the shop and how monotonous it is. Um, and then people that had daycares and th- they had all these side things, and then that became their real job because, of course, they'd been laid off. But a lot of people were not prepared for that at all. And the reason is there used to be a retooling or a changeover that Jam did, and so you would be off for six weeks, but you'd always get called back. So so even though that they would get laid off, they, they had some think, time to, to yeah. develop these oh, other yeah. side yeah. projects. And so, mm-hmm. and so of course it seems like being born in Flint, that might mm-hmm. be a reason that this project or concept occurred to you. Well, yeah, I was a reporter at the time and I was uh, interviewing, I started to interview people who actually were head plants. Like a lot of people didn't, but I started to run into people who really, well, I'll just put more into the business. Like that's what they're, we're going to use the golden parachute, you know, the lump sum of money for. And then, other people that didn't have that option were like, well, at least I've got this business and I'll just work more at that. You know, so they already had it built in. So you're not shy about research. We've established that this hour. <laughs> no. Josie, let's hear. Um, mm. you, we'll go out on a poem of okay. yours. Um, Sounds you, good. Uh, Josie Kearns will be reading a poem from The Theory of Everything. Um, and this is um, for my mom. <laughs> I just want to read it. But also for my friend Ron Felzone, who's a screenwriter, who I also met at Ragdale. And he introduced me to Myra Bartok. And the first time she came to have lunch with us, she said, what do you covet? And I was like, oh, I like her. This is an interesting question. And this is what, and he said, that's the title of the poem, The Last 12 Minutes of the Magnificent Ambersons, which is a film um, that, um, anyway, uh, and it says what Ron said he wanted. Wouldn't you know he'd want something lost, an ending spurned by producers who wanted it happy, thwarting Orson Welles. Lost as my mother's singing, larynx flat as a guitar pick, both still out there echoing according to science. Sound waves leap, waves leap off the planet like kids smashing through the Van Allen belt in a game of Red Rover. Hop to moon, skip to Mars, each sun a yellow jump rope. Solar systems like backyards, notes bounding around a black hole, or, knowing my mother, causing one. Dark as the Dawson find, catch of silver nitrate souls, lost filmic arc, found in the 70s, buried in Alaska, tossed to avoid shipping charges. Pewter discs the only copies of Chaplin, why we know him now. Hope or physics saves these canisters, Wells' work and my mother's intonation. Her mezzo-soprano cannot be buried like those last twelve minutes where Agnes Moorhead, as Fanny, silently rocks as Eugene leaves her forever. Forever in film is a long time. The first time you see it, the twenty-second, re-encrypts longing. Forever in death is a long time, like how music is. Joseph Cotton's oaken timber recorded decades ago, or my mother rocking and rocking goodbye with her song, like Wells' deep focus. Two figures clearly seen keep both stories together, one foreground, the other back. This is why people ask for the lost, their story tiny, the world large. And if my mother's voice is still ringing in asteroids, then there are twelve minutes in some dark vault, uniting Ron with his ending, my mother with me, 
an aria over decades of blackness, her voice nitrate, resilient as silver, that can be brought back up out of earth, that can be mined into the hammered light. Thank you. Um, Thank you for all, for all our mothers and and for all our and for all our theories. Um, thanks, Josie Kearns, <laughs> well, for thank being so much. on Living Writers today, um, and thanks to Jesse Johnston uh, yeah. for engineering um, the theory of everything, alphabet of the ocean. Josie Kearns. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Thank. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, June 17, 2009. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. President Obama reveals plans to regulate America's financial system. Civil rights activists say federal authorities are violating the rights of Muslim charities. And as protests continue over election results in Iran, the Islamic Republic accuses the U.S. of meddling in its affairs. All these stories and more after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. More than two months after an earthquake hit central Italy, killing 300 and leaving tens of thousands homeless, the government is still debating a plan to rebuild the region. FSRN's Deletta Varlese reports. Yes, we can. Shouted almost a thousand people from the Abruzzo region as they demonstrated in front of the Parliament building in Rome. They are representatives of nearly 55,000 who were left homeless and have been living in a tent camp for two months. The camp lacks hygienic services and bakes in 95 degree heat of an early summer. The Abruzzo people say the Berlusconi administration has not kept it.